I invite you to turn with me this morning in your Bible to Zechariah chapter 8. If you don't know where Zechariah is, it's right before just about the Gospel of Matthew, towards the Old Testament, towards the end of the Old Testament. And we come this morning to a word of wonderful hope and comfort and encouragement in the scriptures. I want to begin by reading Zechariah chapter 8, verses 1 through 8. And again, I'll be reading from the Legacy Standard Version. Zechariah the prophet wrote, Then the word of Yahweh of hosts came to me, saying, Thus says Yahweh of hosts, I am jealous with great jealousy for Zion, and with great wrath I am jealous for her. Thus says Yahweh, or the Lord, I will return to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem will be called the city of truth, and the mountain of Yahweh of hosts will be called the holy mountain. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, old men and old women will again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each man with his staff in his hand because of age. And the streets of the city will be filled with boys and girls playing in its streets. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, if it is too difficult in the sight of the remnant of this people in those days, will it also be too difficult in my sight, declares Yahweh of hosts. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, Behold, I am going to save my people from the land where the sun rises and from the land where the sun sets, and I will bring them back, and they will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in truth and righteousness. Amen. Would you pray with me one more time? Oh God, we come now to ask your help. There are portions of the Old Testament scriptures that, honestly, if we were to be frank, seem a little bit strange to us at times. And so we ask that you would help us, help me to explain clearly. And we pray that the purposes for which you originally gave this word some 2,500 years ago, that its timeless purpose would be impressed upon our hearts and minds, we who are gathered here this morning, for the building up of Christ's church. In his name and for his honor. Amen. Well, we've been working our way through this Old Testament book, this book entitled Zechariah. It's named after a prophet whose name was Zechariah. Zechariah, the name means Yahweh or the Lord remembers. And the setting of this book is around 520 years before the birth of Christ, 520 B.C. Israel and Judah by this time are no longer an actual nation as far as they are really just a a people under the reign of a Persian king, Darius. Um, And he is the one who is under the guidance of God, uh, has commanded for a remnant, a small remnant of Jews to return. And about 15, 17 years earlier, a large number of Jews had returned in the 
thousands, over 50,000, they had returned to Jerusalem. Jerusalem, by this time, that was in rubble, had been destroyed by the Babylonians. They had started rebuilding the city. They had started rebuilding the temple, but they had halted at the foundation layer. And again, some of us might think, well, why did God care so much about the, the building? I mean, is God into architecture? No. Um, he, he is the creator of all things, but he created us as creatures, and he created us as creatures of time and space. And in his wisdom and in his providence and in his sovereign right, he, he chose for his people Israel that he would meet with them and be worshipped in Jerusalem at the temple. And so the temple represented the worship of God. It was the worship of God. It was at that time the way in which you expressed faith in God, honor to God. And they had started building the temple, rebuilding it. It had been demolished again by the Babylonians. They had started, but there were many discouragements. The work was hard. They came back to a city that was in rubble, a lot like what we see pictures of Gaza these days. Not very easy to build something in the midst of rubble. Not only were they challenged by the physical constraints, they had enemies who were discouraging them. And then even from within, they had their own problems. We know that among ourselves. I mean, get enough of us together and you got a problem. And as much as we love each other, we have challenges from time to time. So they have, these, these Jews had challenges and they had been discouraged. And so the work in rebuilding had come to a grinding halt. So God raises up two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah. They're ministering at the same time. And God gives to Zechariah a series of revelations of words from God given to encourage the people to resume the work of rebuilding the temple and building God's house and getting back to being his people. I will say right up front, we're not trying to build a physical structure. We talked lately about, you know, this building. And if you hear us talking about it, just... For those of you who are new, just remember the church is about 15 years old and, and we've been wandering from place to place for most of those years. So if, if we talk about the building, it's not because we're enamored with the building. Uh, it's not the most beautiful building on Route 4, is it? Um, so it's not that. It's just we are so thankful to have a place to meet. Um, and so we're, we're like children. We're, we're kind of just thankful and excited. Um, but we understand this place is going to burn going to rot this isn't the the temple right now the work that God's interested isn't in a physical building he's interested in you you're the building that he's building you're the spiritual house of the Lord but even in the work of the church we can become discouraged right I do maybe none of you do but I can I can become discouraged Uh, none of you can be discouraged with the condition of the church generally but some of us might We can become discouraged too, and we too need encouragement. And so God gives to the people of Judah and of Israel of old and to us a word of comfort and a word of encouragement. The purpose of verses 1 through 8, look down at verse 9 of chapter 8. In verse 9, thus says the Lord, let your hands be strong. Is he interested in their physical fitness? No, that's a a phrase that means, hey, yeah, it's, it's hard work, this work of of being my people, this work of, of building my house, of my worship. 
but get to it. Let your hands be strong. Give yourself anew to my work, what I've called you to do as my servants here and now. So the purpose of verses 1 through 8 in this whole section is that the people might be encouraged, that their hands might be strengthened to do God's work. And God gives them strength for the present time in their work by giving them a word about the future. And God does that with us. The, most of what God says in the future, about the future in the Bible is not just for our curiosity. Hey, how are things going to work out? What's your position on this, that, or the other thing? The reason that God gives us so many promises about the future is because, first, it's true. And secondly, he wants us to be comforted in the present and encouraged in the face of very difficult and overwhelming circumstances. So the strength to do the work of the Lord, listen, the strength to do the work of the Lord in the present time is found in paying attention to what God says about the future time. Strength for the present time is found in paying attention to what God says about the future. End times has fallen on hard times. Many Christians today tend to think that end times is just a matter for controversy and and disagreement, and and it is uh, maybe accompanied by that. But some today think it's just kind of a speciality, or if that's your thing, you know, study that. Well, in reality, some argue that up to a third, a quarter, or a third of the Bible has to do with what God's going to do in the future. We can't relegate it to something incidental or unimportant. And, And what I especially want to impress upon you is that God gives us words about the future to courage us, to encourage us, and strengthen us. And this is the pattern of our Lord. How did our Lord endure all that he did in his life? As a boy knowing who he was, as a young man knowing who he was, as having disciples, apostles, even his closest friends didn't understand him and what he was doing. How did he endure everything, including the cross? Hebrews 12, 2 says that Jesus, who for the joy set before him, our Lord, none other than our Lord, sustained, was sustained in his hard work by his setting his mind on the promises, on what he knew was ahead. And it's the same for us. That joy that our Lord, in, uh, that was set before him, that joy that was set before him for which he endured the cross, that joy in the Bible has a shape and, and it's encapsulated or summarized in a phrase, and that phrase is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God in the Bible has a shape as well. It is a spiritual kingdom, and so yes, the kingdom of God is here now among us as we worship this morning and as anywhere where the Bible is read and the gospel of Jesus Christ is preached truly, and you find believers in Jesus Christ, there is a spiritual and even a physical initial representation of the kingdom of God. But it is not just spiritual, it is also physical. The day is coming when Christ will return, not to Mars, not to the moon, not to another galaxy, but to this little blue globe hanging in space. He's going to come to this earth, yeah, this messed up earth. 
And he's going to come and he's going to judge his enemies and he's going to impose his rule on earth and it will be a wonderful reign for our Lord is good, our Lord is kind, our Lord is just, our Lord is mighty and he will come again and the kingdom of God, you will see it if you're a believer with your resurrected eyes. You will feel it with your resurrected feet. You will touch it with your resurrected hand. There are some in evangelicalism even today that have a very negative view of of thinking about the future kingdom in any kind of physical terms. But that's not biblical. That's, That's Greek philosophy. Our God made us with bodies. Our God made this earth. Our God made it all, and he said it was good. And when God raised Jesus from the dead, he did not raise him just spiritually, did he? He raised him bodily. And when Jesus met with his disciples, what did he say? When they, maybe they offered him, they didn't offer him fish, but if they had, did he say, oh no, you guys don't understand, that's so, that's so carnal, I'm spiritual now. No, he said, he said actually to them, hey, you guys have any fish? And then he took a piece of fish, which I love, and he chewed it right in front of them. And they're looking at him, and maybe they're thinking, you know, is, is he a ghost? Is it going to fall out, you know, under his chin, you know, because it's going to pass right through him? We teach and believe in the the biblical gospel is the bodily resurrection of our Lord and the bodily resurrection of believers in our Lord and the bodily resurrection means that he's going to make a physical earth a new earth and a new heaven but even before that the Bible teaches consistently that there is a time coming revelation refers to it as a thousand year time that's why we historically have called it the millennium a thousand-year period of time. This will not be the new earth and the new heaven. And, and by the way, we are going to live with God on the new earth, and heaven will come down. So I'm sorry if that disappoints some of you, but you're not going to be floating around on some gold street somewhere in, in the galaxy. In the new earth, you're going to have dirt under your feet. And it's going to be beautiful. But before the new earth and heaven comes down, Christ is going to return to this earth. Christ is going to turn to this earth and he's going to rule on this earth. And the Bible consistently speaks of a period of time on this earth before the new heavens and new earth in which the kingdom of God will be realized. Wickedness will be subdued. Satan will be bound for a thousand years. Christ will reign on the throne of David from a Jerusalem. Yes, and that Jerusalem is the Jerusalem that you know. Some, again today, is becoming increasingly um, predominant, this mentality that Jerusalem and Judah and Israel and Jacob, these all refer to generally the church, and, and we are, they would say, Zion. We are Jerusalem. We are Judah. We are Israel. We are Jacob. And I have to, I'm trying to say this up front because I, I probably many of you have heard that and I can't preach the text if, if you think that way. I mean, I can, but it's going to be hard. Let me just give you a few statistics. I just spent a little bit of time this week. You can do this uh, with your Logos Bible app on your phone or other Bible apps. Just look up Jerusalem. You'll find Jerusalem, the name Jerusalem occurs 
813, 813 times in your Bible. Not one of those is the church called Jerusalem. In five of them, it refers to the new or the heavenly Jerusalem, which will, we're told at the end of the book of Revelation, will come down to the new earth. 813 times. 813 times. Whether it's the geographical Jerusalem we know of now or the heavenly Jerusalem, it's not the church. Zion, what about Zion? Zion was another name for Jerusalem, the city of David, same place. 158 times in the Bible. What about Judah? I'm saying this because originally these words were given to Israel and Judah. And one of the things that God is going to promise in this whole passage is a, is a reunification in the last days in the kingdom of Israel and Judah. Those two kingdoms that have been separated after the days of Solomon. God is adamant that he's going to reunite these two nations in the last days under Christ, Judah and Israel. 813, rather, 838 times in the Bible, Judah is used. About 30 of those refer to the original Judah, one of the sons of Jacob. The rest of it is to his descendants or the tribe. The church is never called Judah. What about Israel? You ready for this? 2,578 times the word Israel occurs in the Bible. 2,578 times. 40 to 50 of those are, uh, Rebecca, could you just turn me down just a, a little bit? Thank you. 40 to 50 of those refer to Jacob or the original Israel, the man. The entire rest of those 2,500, you can do the math, refer to an identifiable ethnic people, a nation. And not once in the entire Bible is the church called Israel. Not once. Some say, oh, what about Galatians 6? Um, well, first, okay, you're going to change. God's going to make that change on one verse. And it makes sense in Galatians if there Paul is railing against Judaizers, those who were teaching a legalistic, pharisaical form of Judaism. It is understandable that at the close of his letter to the Galatians, he would call true believing Jews, the Israel of God. We're not Israel. We're not Judah. What about Jacob? 374 times in the Bible. Some of those, of course, to the original man. Most are to the nation. You get the idea here. Words mean something, and if they mean anything, they mean what God understood them to mean to the people he was writing to. I need to move on, I know, and we're going to move quickly. But just think with me how that would work as far as a form of encouragement if God originally gave the word through Zechariah to the people of Israel. And he's going to give them various promises. Just, uh, just look at these. Uh, God says, verse 3, for example, I will return to Zion, and the city of Jerusalem will be called the city of Jer truth. Now what if Zechariah had said on the side, to the people who were then living in Jerusalem... The Jerusalem we know of today, that geographical location, that city they loved, the city of, of David, the city where they worshiped God. And what if Zechariah had said, what God just said about Jerusalem, Zion, he doesn't actually mean where you're standing right now in that place. 
um, Jerusalem Zion is a group of people a few thousand years from now that are, it's going to be a spiritual place. Oh. oh so he's not going to actually return to Jerusalem? Or, or what about verse 4? Old men and old women will again sit in the streets of Jerusalem. And verse 5, the streets will be filled with boys and girls. By the way, that's, that is the primary reason why I'm suggesting this passage has to do with this thousand-year millennial period because before the new heavens and new earth, because that's a period of time where you still have old age and you still have children. You don't have that in the new heaven and new earth. You don't have marriage in the new heaven and earth. You don't have age. You don't have any of that. But what if Zechariah had said to the people, God just said that one day he's going to come to Jerusalem, he's going to restore it, and it's going to finally be a safe place, and there'll be old men and women uh, safely in the streets and boys and girls playing, but psst, it's not really old men and old women, and it's not really boys and girls. What God means to say is there's going to be people, spiritually, and, uh, you know, they're going to be safe. Uh, oh. So, so no old men, no old women, no, no boys and girls. No, 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 that's, that's so carnal. What are you thinking? Um, uh, you, you get the idea? You can't spiritualize. There's nothing spiritual about it. All these phrases and hope at the end of the day that God is communing any, communicating anything. So we will teach this morning that these things are the Jerusalem, the Zion, Old men, old women, boys and girls that you and I know that they knew. And I must move quickly now. I have to address that because that is the dominant viewpoint of this day and age. And uh, I'm well aware of being out of step with that. And I would be glad to talk with you more about it if you're interested. So let's look together. First of all, I want you to notice in verse 2, the Lord God says that he is very jealous with great jealousy for Zion. It's not that that piece of geography is, you know, more beloved to God because of its exceptional nature. Not at all. God um, is the God of the universe. God is God of all the earth. It's just that God in his wisdom and in his plan chose that that particular geographical city location would be the capital city For his people, Israel, it would be the place where David reigned, and one day the son of David, Jesus the Messiah, will reign. Jerusalem has um, failed again and again and again. And at the time of the writing of this, uh, or giving of these visions, Jerusalem has been destroyed by the Babylonians. It's largely rubble. And we know today that on the very place where the temple once was, there is a temple to Allah. And the most, the most uh, fought over and most um, uh, jealously guarded city in the world is Jerusalem. And we know that to this day. It's a powder keg. It has never been settled as God promised. It has never had the peace that God promised. God here promises He says, first of all, I'm jealous for Zion. He's jealous for Zion. And Zion is, yes, Jerusalem, but as the capital city, it does represent the people. We understand this. We use words in this way. Sometimes in the news, 
in international events, people will say, well, what does Washington think? Well, they don't mean George Washington. They mean the city of Washington. And they don't mean the city of Washington as the, as the citizens. They mean the fact that Washington is the capital city of the United States of America. So Washington can be short for the entire people. So the world hates Jews. The world hates Israel. The United Nations hates Israel. And Israel at this present time is largely comprised of Jews who do not believe that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah. Many of them are secular and have no interest in God. You're not part of God's people simply by being born ethnically a Jew. And yet, ethnically, those who are Jews are descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God did choose in his sovereign right to cause his gospel to come through this particular ethnic group, this particular nation. And God uses them as a priest, a representative to the other nations of the world. His design from the very beginning was that through Abraham and his descendants, that all peoples, all nations would be blessed. And here we are this morning as evidence of that. But if God uses this people group for this purpose, God doesn't use them and then discard them. He doesn't use them and then rename other people Israel and say, no, actually, I really didn't mean you you when I said Jew or when I said Israel. He doesn't do that. Our God does not do that. He has a particular love for and affection for the ethnic, physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the people of Israel. And they are the most hated people in all of history. And we, of all people, living right in this moment, should see that and witness it. Why are they so hated? There's no other explanation than that Satan knows that God still loves this people. And that he has promised to restore them in the last days. So God says, I am jealous with great jealousy for Zion, with great wrath. Whenever God says great and it's jealous and it's wrath, you ought to take notice. We ought to take notice. Another truth underscoring how serious God is in these, verse, in these eight verses. You notice when I read the scripture, how many times the phrase, the Lord of hosts or Yahweh of hosts was referenced. Did you notice that? Lord of hosts or the Yahweh of, Yahweh of hosts. That phrase occurs 260 times in the Old Testament. The Lord of hosts. It's, it's a... It's a name of uh, power. It's, it's God's name of his military name, if you will, his kingly name. In other words, that with God are myriads and myriads of angelic beings and the armies of Israel. When God wants to get attention, he says, thus says the Lord of hosts. You should you know, straighten up and take notice whenever you hear that. The Lord of hosts. Whoa. Well, 260 times in the Old Testament, 53 times that phrase, Lord of hosts, that name occurs in Zechariah, 10 in chapter 8 alone. You think, you think God's trying to get anybody's attention? The Lord of hosts says, the Lord of hosts says, the Lord of hosts says, he binds his name and his reputation and his power with what he promises here. So what does he promise? What are the promises he's giving to to Israel of old and to us this morning meant to encourage his people? First of all, we'll look at five. Verse three, first of all, the Lord will return to Jerusalem or Zion 
and he will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. This will happen when Jesus returns, who is God the Son, God in flesh, and he will come and return to the Mount of Olives, and then he will come to We'll learn at the end of Zechariah, Jesus will come to Jerusalem in the last days when Jerusalem is surrounded by the armies of the world. Again, that shouldn't be spectacular to us. Take the United States out of the picture right now. Take us out. We have no military presence. What do you think happens to Israel? <coughs> Give it 24 hours and they're completely surrounded and Hamas is joined by every other nation around them with full support, and you have a holocaust that makes the holocaust of World War II look like nothing. It is God's grace that the people are preserved. And God is, one day Jesus is going to return and fight for a remnant of believing Jews in the last days who will be beleaguered, surrounded, and he will return. And not only will he come and defend, but Jesus will come and he will reign over this earth from Jerusalem. How else do you explain Psalm 2? Psalm 2, I'm going to turn there. I'm not going to try to quote it. You can turn there if you like. Psalm 2 is a, a messianic psalm. And towards the end, God gives a warning to the kings of the earth. He says to the Messiah, he says, I will give you the nations as your inheritance. And you, God says to Messiah, you shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like a potter's vessel. So now, O king, show insight. Take warnings, O judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he become angry and you perish in the way. In other words, Jesus is going to return and rule on this earth where there's still a potential for rebellion. And men are going to have to make decisions. So the Lord will return to Jerusalem. Secondly, he promises, Jerusalem will be called the city of truth and the holy mountain. Well, Jerusalem was the place where for hundreds of years there had been false worship, falsehood. And God says, then Jerusalem will be called the city of truth. There won't be any lies. There won't be any false worship. There won't be any corruption. There won't be any misrepresentation. City of truth. Jerusalem isn't a city of truth now. It wasn't a city of truth in Jesus' day. It hasn't been a city of truth in its entire existence. But it, is, it will be one day. The city of truth. And the mountain of the Lord. The mountain there. It's not that Jerusalem has a particularly high mountain, but it is a prominent location. And the mountain there, speaking of God's capital on earth, and it, he calls it his own, the mountain of the, of the Lord of hosts, and it will be called holy. Thirdly, God promises, and I love these verses 4 and 5. These are, these are a few of my favorite verses in the Bible. Um, verses 4 and 5. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Old men and old women will again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with his staff in his hand because of his age. So there's going to be a period of time in the future where there's old men and old women who or live long lives, they still need a uh, staff. Well, that, that can't be the new heaven, the new earth, the eternal state, because we'll have new bodies, we'll be resurrected and uh, 
you're not going to need a staff to lean on when you got your new resurrected body. Um, no walkers needed. So there must be a period of time in which there's exceptional peace on earth. And when Jesus comes in the millennium, there'll be conditions on earth. Think of it. No theft, no lying. There will be a renewal of even the environment. God can do that. Christ can do that. And so that men and women who know Christ, who enter into the thousand years without resurrected bodies, they will live long lives like Methuselah, only better. We shouldn't be shocked that, that the body could handle a thousand years as God originally intended. That's what we see early in the book of Genesis. So, so they'll live to an old age and they'll be safe. This is the key. They'll be safe. And then the boys and girls playing in the streets. You don't have boys and girls in the new heavens and new earth. Jesus teaches there will be marriage in the eternal state. What's going on here? In every time of war and conflict, who are the most vulnerable? Who are the most vulnerable? Who dies first? The elderly, the older men and women, the aged, and the little ones. And God is saying, the time is coming when I return to Jerusalem, and the city will be so safe, you will be so safe, you will be so flourishing, that that will be a place where old men and old women will live year after year after year after year. No telemarketing scam calls, no theft, no malpractice, no one pawning false remedies to them and all the other stuff that goes on. And the boys and girls, oh, I love this. I, I, I'm planning on, I mean, maybe, maybe this is, isn't spiritual enough for some, but I am, on, on my hope, I am planning on seeing my resurrected, glorious Lord Jesus Christ on the throne in Jerusalem and in the streets of that new millennial Jerusalem. I am absolutely planning on seeing many, many boys and girls running around playing kickball and all kinds of things and laughing and no one to harm them. No one has to say, watch out. No one has to say, lock the door. You don't even have a locked door. There will be no one to harm them because the city will be holy. The city will be Christ. His angels will be there. And Jesus loves boys and girls. Boys and girls here this morning, if you don't understand anything in my message, know this. Jesus loves boys and girls. He loves boys and girls. And there's a time coming on this present earth when Jesus is going to come to town and he's going to make this earth safe for boys and girls. That's going to be wonderful. A fourth promise. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm missing verse 6. There's a little bit of interjection because by this point there are some who are saying, no, that's, that's too outlandish. That's, that's just getting too much. I mean, this earth is so messed up. Jerusalem is a city of war. It's rubble at the time of Zechariah. To this day, it's a city of conflict. This is too detailed. You need to back off and just kind of, you know, generalize it. And God says in verse 6, thus says the Lord of hosts. There it is again. Take notice. Thus says the Lord of hosts. If it is too difficult in the sight of the remnant of the people in those days, will it also be too difficult in my sight? There's a little interjection here by God. Lesson. Little pointer. Little heads up. 
Just because a man or woman or all men and women determine that something is too hard or too wonderful or too difficult, too spectacular for the Lord, we should not, by that popular opinion, surmise that God shares our opinion. He doesn't. Just because we think something's too hard for him doesn't mean that he thinks it's too hard. (laughs) Take the polls all you want, God is essentially saying. I don't care what the mood of the day is. You think this is too difficult for me to pull off? It's not too difficult for me. God can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, with whomever he wants. And that's why I love the details of these future promises. They They are big. They are grand. And they are fitting of our great God. Nothing is too difficult for God. We say it. We say it. And it's true. But you really know whether you believe it or not when you're reading your Bible and you look at some of these promises and you say, can it be? Yeah, can be. It will be. Fourth promise, verse 7, the Lord will gather his people, a remnant of Jews of Israel from the east and the west. He says, behold, I'm going to save my people from the land where the sun rises and from the land where the sun sets. And I will bring them back and they will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. So he will, he will cause them to regather. We've already seen some of this since 19, well, even before 1948 in the establishment of the nation. But in the last days, God will regather. God is not speaking here of all peoples, of all Gentiles and nations. He does in Zechariah. Just a little earlier, God had promised that in the last days that men and women will come from all nations to worship the Lord. There will be many nations that comprise the people of God in the last days. And one of those nations will be Israel. And they who have been scattered and persecuted will be regathered from the land of the east, that is the, where the sun rises, to the west, from the lands of the west where the sun sets. Fifthly and final promise this morning. The Lord will cause a remnant of Jews to dwell in Jerusalem in safety and an unhindered fellowship with God. Verse 8, they will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. They shall be my people. I will be their God in truth and righteousness. It's going to happen. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you say, well, what, what, what does this have to do with me? Well, this is your God. This is your Christ. These are your people. You may not be a Jew, but these are these are part of the people of God they are the root and you are the branch you've been grafted in we rejoice in what God promises to Israel and we learn from it that once God gives his promises to a people he doesn't revoke he doesn't change his mind which is so encouraging as we come to the Lord's table this morning and remember that our Lord said to us I will never leave you or forsake you he keeps his word This is one of the reasons why I'm so adamant about sticking to the meaning of the text. It means what it means when it says Israel and so forth. It's because if we we say that that's somehow allegorized or spiritualized and some number of us are Israel and Judah and some of you maybe this morning are the old men and women. Some of you are the boys and girls, spiritually speaking. We make such hash of the Bible that at the end of the day, how do you know that anything in this actually applies to you? Because... How do you know that you means you if Jew doesn't mean Jew? If Jerusalem doesn't mean Jerusalem, doesn't work, you see. 
you take the plain, straightforward meaning of the text, especially if it's Israel and repeated 2,578 times in the Bible, and you say, wow, I don't know all how God's going to work that out, but if God says that's what he's going to do, he's going to do that. And I rejoice that he's that faithful because that means that as a believer in Jesus Christ, as a Gentile, as part of the people of God, I'm part of that too. And I'm going to see these things and I'm going to participate in the kingdom of my Lord. And I'm going to have the joy of his promise, seeing his promises fulfilled. That strengthens me for the work that I do. Um, I do not do what I do as a pastor for temporary goals. I'm working hard. I, I want to see you built up. I want to see you taught. I want to see you trained. I want to see this church strengthened. I want to see leaders trained. I want to see the worship of God be right and, and reverent and energetic with joy i'm working towards all these things but i'm very well aware that in this fallen world opposed by satan that can be very hard and there can be opposition and uh it could be that that uh um the lord takes me home and and somebody comes after me and and the church goes a different direction in other words we have to be recognized that our work for the lord on this earth at this time doesn't necessarily seem to last that long. It would be absolute vanity for me to think that I can work in such a way that I'm going to set down patterns that are going to be last this church for another thousand years. Wouldn't that be vain of me? I mean, nobody else has done it. So I don't work for temporary gains. I work and do what I do, first of all, for a person, and his name is Jesus. We do all that we do just to please the Lord. And the wonderful thing is we can please him. He's not impossible to please. We do what we do to please Jesus, and and that is enough. But I also, we do what we do because of what our Lord has promised about the future. And we know that though the particular circumstances we work in may not work out exactly the way we think they should we know that in the end, according to the promise of the word of God, these things shall be so. So I work with all my might, knowing, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, that our labor is not in vain in the Lord. Our labor is not in vain. There's not, I need to close, but there's not one of us who are going to be in that Jerusalem when we see Jesus. And we're going to think to ourselves, man, why did I work so hard serving him? (laughs) That's not going to be our thought. Our thought is probably going to be, oh, wow, if I'd taken him at his word, I probably would have served with more heart, more vigor, more encouragement. So let's take him at his word. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for your words of encouragement. Help we who have become discouraged and maybe given up on your church or once we worked hard for your kingdom trying to share jesus with other people and we've become discouraged first of all would you comfort those who are here this morning in that condition comfort them encourage them but lift up our eyes lift up our eyes that though it seems at the present time so much of our efforts and prayers and 
desires for you, Lord, and your kingdom, they seem to not be realized. So often the church is so attacked by Satan, it's struck with confusion and division and all the things that break our hearts. We pray this morning that you'll minister comfort to your people and that you'll lift up the eyes of our hearts. Give us a glimpse in your word this morning of of a wonderful time on the horizon, not that far away, when all will truly be right, when Jesus will be present again on this earth and he will rule. What a blessed people we are with such a prospect in front of us. Give us anticipation in in faith and hope. In your name I pray, amen.